0: Our scripture today is from the book of Genesis in the 37th chapter, verses 18 through 28. You can find it, if you want, in your pew Bible. You can turn to page 33 and read along. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, as we prepare to read your word, we do so expecting you to show up. For God, when we read your word, we know that it is you speaking, and so give us ears to hear. Help us as we read that everything we bring to this would fall away, but all that you bring would remain. Amen. And so we read. His brothers saw Joseph from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness but lay no hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornamented robe that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers, well... They agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Joseph. But in the Bible, he's a big deal. Maybe what you know about him is the technicolor dreamcoat, right, uh, that, that was mentioned there in those verses. That's a good start. His story is kind of a rags-to-riches story. He is the 12th son, which makes me just feel tired. But he's daddy's favorite, and his is a story of an unexpected rise from low position to being the advisor to Pharaoh. And what we read today was just a snippet of that story. It's a story that happens in fits and spurts over the course of about 15 chapters in Genesis. And so you'll understand why we didn't read through all of it this morning, although I do recommend add it to your things to read list. What you'll discover If you do read it, or what you might know already, is that Joseph had a rough road for a long time. He might have been his father's favorite, but his 11 brothers, clearly, as we read about, had other feelings about that. What we read today tell the beginning of what is fair to assume is significant trauma for Joseph. And we're going to name it right now that trauma is a loaded word. The word itself comes from Greek, where it means wound, and originally referred to only physical wounds, but now in in these days applies to psychological wounds as well. It could be a clinical term. It is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope. It's also a word that we kind of throw around a little today. For after all, there are differing kinds of trauma. And today, I don't pretend to use the word solely clinically. It's not my intention to do so for a few reasons. First, I think what is experienced as trauma is different for different people. What's traumatic for one person may not be necessarily traumatic for another for, frankly, reasons that we understand but also don't understand. And second, I don't think it's entirely healthy to get into comparisons when we are reflecting on what has been wounding or traumatic for any one of us. I know too many people who minimize or don't recognize their own feelings or processes because they point to someone else or have had someone else point to their own trauma that they feel is worse. And I do think perspective is important. But when perspective interferes with our healthy processing of significant events in our lives, that kind of perspective-izing, if you will, it's not good. And I want to hold that. I want to keep that in mind as we look at Joseph's story today and in turn look at some of our own. So Joseph, among many other things, he had this gift He had a talent for interpreting dreams, and without getting too much in the weeds about that, he just had some dreams relatively early in his life that gave his older brothers reason to be offended. As the 12th son, he didn't rank well in the sibling hierarchy, but in his dreams, all his brothers were bowing down before him. He doesn't keep that to himself. He tells them all about it, and that, that was offensive to them so offensive that they debate killing him that's where we jumped into the scripture today and in that moment somewhat cooler heads if you want to call it that cooler heads prevail and they settle on selling joseph into slavery rather than killing him they sell him to make a profit. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And in case you're wondering, no, that's not an insignificant amount of money at the time. It, in fact, was a common amount to purchase a slave. I do wonder, incidentally, how 11 not-quite-murderous brothers decided to split 20 pieces of silver. Uh, Maybe another sermon for another time. But here's the thing. Joseph had faults, all right? But whatever those faults were, however much his brothers disliked him for whatever those faults ended up being, being sold into slavery by his brothers was wrong by any measure. And it should be noted for Joseph was traumatic by any measure. And we have to recognize as we read this story that family has great potential to be the source of of trauma in our lives. Many of us, many of us can point to wounds that come from members of our family. Sometimes that trauma or pain can feel shameful because we think that something must have been wrong with our family, something must have been wrong with us to have so much broken in our families. And at this point, I I can relate to you. I know that feeling. As, As some of you know, and as I share with students, not infrequently as it comes up in any given year, some of my own trauma centers around the family in which I grew up. I grew up the middle child of three brothers, a brother 15 months older, a brother 15 months younger than me. And my oldest brother, Lee, from the age of four until the age of about 13, was abused by family outside of our home. Family, as you can imagine, that we are no longer in touch with. And it was not until Lee attempted suicide for the first time that our family learned of what had been happening. That day, that moment for us, it began a long road of treatment and therapy in various ways for each and all of us. My younger brother would make reckless decisions for a long time to come, but has ultimately come out the other side. My parents would divorce. And my older brother, who fought for 10 years, eventually completed suicide in 2003. It is important to share this from the pulpit because to say that my family is messed up is true. But if you have ever thought that about your family, it's important to say from this space that you are not alone. And I can't speak for Joseph. I can't speak for how much he processed or failed to process whatever happens to him. But I do think, and I do wonder if in that caravan of slaves, if he ever thought to himself, well, that's a messed up, fam- messed up way for family to treat you. If Joseph was any kind of normal human being, I imagine he spent a great deal of time being hurt, a great deal of time processing the physical and psychological consequences of what was done to him. And as he works through that, he eventually winds up as a servant in Potiphar's house. This is the name of the man who is the captain of the Egyptian guard. And things go well for a while. Joseph pulls his life together as much as he can. He does a good job in his uh, servitude. And then Potiphar's wife starts to make it clear that she has an interest in Joseph. And day after day, she harasses him with that interest. And Joseph, again and again, day after day, does the right thing and rejects her advances And his reward for doing the right thing is that Potiphar's wife makes up a story. Potiphar's wife goes to her husband and tells him, this servant is after me. This servant has been making advances toward me as an insult to us as a family. And that chief of the Egyptian guard throws Joseph promptly into jail. Now it's Labor Day weekend, and so we've been talking about work. But friends, we have to acknowledge that work can be a place of great and significant trauma for many people. We have to name that work can be a place of traumatic harassment for some. We know full well that women in particular and LGBTQIA plus brothers and sisters they face such harassment as a reality every day at work. And it is not uncommon that in certain workplaces we can be rewarded for doing the wrong thing and we can be punished for doing the right thing. And that in and of its own is wrong. That in and of its own is hurtful. But we bring alongside that situations like wrongful termination, scapegoating, unrealistic expectations, diminishment and bullying on a professional level, and a whole host of other things that our workaholic culture can also create. And they all of them result in burnout. It results in harmful coping mechanisms. It results in secondary harm to our family and our other relationships. Friends, trauma at work is real. And so Joseph winds up in jail after being harassed. He winds up in jail after doing the right thing, and while he's there, there the, his, his uh, guards, they recognize he 's a good prisoner. And it's not long before two other prisoners join him, the Pharaoh's baker and the pharaoh's cupbearer. In case you're not familiar with the uh, profession of cupbearing uh, This is the person who, not surprisingly, would bring the cup of wine or drink before the pharaoh. And as pharaoh, you had some concerns about being poisoned. And so the cupbearer was an extremely trusted person to have by your side. At times, the cupbearer tasted that cup, risked their own lives for the sake of yours. To wind up in prison then meant trust had been broken. The guards tell Joseph, take care of them. Well, it's not long before the baker and the cupbearer both begin having dreams, and Joseph's gift is called once again into use. You'll recall the last time he used his gift, it found him in the bottom of a pit as a result. So Joseph, hearing their dreams, interprets them, trusting this gift. And what he tells the cupbearer about his dream is that it means that you will soon be freed. You will soon be freed. You will soon be before Pharaoh once again, serving that cup to him. And when you do, he asks, please, please remember me. Remember me when you are out of this place and all is well with you. Please tell Pharaoh that I am innocent. Please tell Pharaoh that I have done nothing wrong, and not three days, but three days later, that that cupbearer is, in fact, freed and restored. And what does the cupbearer do? Nothing. The scripture tells us that the cupbearer forgets Joseph, and the consequence for Joseph is two more years in prison. Friends, because we know that in addition to family and work, we know many of us have been broken by friendships or other important relationships in our lives. Betrayal and violence, not showing up when we most need them, broken promises, we know all too well the ways in which we have been hurt by those we trust. And so what are we to do? What are we to do when family or work or friends or just the circumstances of life result in trauma? The first thing I'll say to that, maybe the most important thing I'll say all day, is that I do not believe God is the author of your trauma. At no point in Joseph's story do we see any hint, any suggestion that these deeds were God's designs. Rather, at every turn, we see humans making human decisions that cause disastrous consequences for other humans, human decisions fueled by jealousy and by anger and by thoughtlessness. What we read in Scripture, rather, is that God is there in the aftermath of those decisions, in the aftermath of that trauma, that That is where God shows up and is at work. And so, friends, if someone has ever told you, if you have ever come to believe from someone that some trauma in your life is God's doing or is some kind of test from God, God bless that person, that person is wrong. To put it plainly, your trauma is not a test from God. God did not give you your trauma. We see this in the end point of Joseph's story arc. The end of this story is when he faces the very brothers who have betrayed him. And what he ultimately says to them is this, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. In other words, that terrible thing that you did God worked in the midst of that terrible thing and did everything God could to remind me that I still have worth. And so God is not the cause of the trauma. No, God sat with Joseph in the trauma. God sat with Joseph beyond the trauma. God is at Joseph's side as the consequences Of the trauma play out, which is to say simply, God does not forsake us. And so if the first observation there is that God is not the author of your trauma, the second is this, Joseph had work to do. Friends, we cannot wait for and expect God to do all the work and then wonder why nothing changes. Now, I'm not saying God can't do the work. I'm not saying God doesn't do the work or that God won't do the work. But I think assuming that we have no role in the work to be done is a misguided assumption. Archbishop Desmond Tutu writes, We are not responsible for what breaks us, but can be responsible for what puts us back together. Friends, I believe that we are strong. I believe we are resilient, I believe we are capable, I believe God made us this way. And so our task, if you will, in the face of trauma is, first of all, to feel the feelings, and second, to learn the lessons, and third, to learn to let the heaviness go. Don't mishear me in that. What I mean to say, your feelings, they are valid. The pain that you feel is real and it is valid. Your timeline with trauma and the way that you deal with it is your timeline. It is no one else's timeline. You are allowed to deal with trauma at the pace that is healthy for you. But the heaviness that you may feel is not eternal. It is not to be there forever. And so I say again, feel your feelings, learn the lessons, let go of the heaviness. To feel the feelings is to give yourself permission to validate how something makes you feel, how it has affected and is affecting you in your life now. It is helpful to give a name to what you feel When my brother took his life, I felt a lot of things, some of which wouldn't actually reveal themselves for years. Of course, obviously, I felt anger toward the family that had been the cause of it. But I was surprised over time to find myself also angry at my brother. It was not that I blamed him, of course, but I was still angry with him for choosing what he chose. It took time to come and see that those feelings, too, Were and are valid. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, in her book, Fierce Love, points out that heavy burdens that we carry, they have lessons for us. The unforgiven hurts, she says, the bitter resentments, and the hard feelings that weigh us down have stories to tell us and wisdom to offer. And so it is important at some point as we feel these feelings to begin to ask questions that might teach us lessons. Questions like, how do my feelings make up part of who I am? Where do these feelings come from? When I am prepared, how can I or might I confront the source of what has happened? What does it mean as I continue to live my life bravely and in light of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ? It means looking boldly at those relationships that are broken, and sometimes knowing that those relationships can, in fact, be healed, and knowing, too, that sometimes healing looks like boundaries that say, you cannot be a part of my life any longer. And as we learn whatever lessons there are to be learned, we can get permission to let go of the heaviness. That doesn't mean that you will let go of it altogether. It does not mean that we forget that it happened. It does not mean we sweep it under some kind of rug. What it does mean is that all of us will have or do have hurt places in our soul, and that the project in the face of hard moments is learning to heal and get lighter. And I think we do that by talking about it, I think we do that with love and support. I think we do that with people we trust. Frankly, I think we often do it with the help of a good therapist. And we do it knowing that God is not the author of it. We do it, I hope, knowing that God is fiercely at work with us and in us in the aftermath. Friends, Joseph told the brothers that betrayed him Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. May that be so for us. Let's pray. God, as we are here, we trust that you are a God who is in the business of redemption and healing That you were a God who would not harm us. You work for us. You work for the good of us. And God, we know that no burden is too heavy to bring to you. And we would pray that this would be a community in which that would also be true. That there is no burden too heavy for this community to bear together. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.